morning, I want to say a couple of words of thank you. Uh, Robin's talked about what's coming up next weekend in the way of Christmas events and so on, but I want to just say a couple of words of thank you looking back on the past week um, by way of thanks as well. Uh, first of all, I want to say thanks to everyone who supported us at Carols of Botany uh, on Thursday night. Put your hand up if you were there. Yeah, it was awesome. We had, um, I think, by far the biggest crowd of people we have ever had kind of hanging in for that. And a big part of that was the Botany Life mob that showed up. Um, you guys are awesome. Thank you for doing that because a crowd does attract a crowd. And there were, I don't know how many, but there were hundreds of people sitting in the middle of Botany Town Centre listening to uh, and singing along with carols. And um, I still can't believe that we get to stand in the middle of a commercial shopping centre and sing carols these days, and I actually get to say a few words about Jesus. Um, I'm, I'm just shocked, and as long as they allow us to do it, we're going to do it. But it's awesome, so thank you for, for those of you who showed up, and massive thanks too for the, to the staff pulling it off, to the band that was involved. It was just a very cool night, so thank you. Second thank you I want to say is thank you to everyone who contributed to Christmas Koha uh, this year. Um, you may not realize, but what we are doing is we are making Christmas a reality for families that won't have it if we weren't stepping in as a church. And so uh, this year we managed to put together 10 uh, grocery boxes that will go to needy families with just basic food items that their pantry probably doesn't have. And in addition, we've put together seven big tubs filled with Christmas presents uh, for seven families that would have nothing uh, this Christmas if it wasn't uh, for you and for your generosity. And you may not have realized, but we work with um, this trust in South Auckland, that's one of our partners, Te Whakaora Tangata, and they gave us the names of seven families. So we were not just accumulating random presents, we were working on shopping lists to buy gifts for seven specific families and the specific children in those families. So when you went out with a list and brought a few packets of colored pencils or some balls or books or whatever it is that you perhaps bought, you may not have realized, but they were, they're actually going to specific children that we know about and we are specifically targeting those gifts for them. Um, I also want to acknowledge the Soul Sisters community group, the lovely ladies over here, who for I don't know how many years have now made it their mission to make this come true. So if you're in Soul Sisters, can I just see a hand? Any of you? Can we say a big thanks to them? Because they are awesome. <laughs> These amazing women spent the better part of two days this week going through everything that was donated, putting it all into boxes and sorting all the gifts, working out what was missing, then going shopping using the money that some of you gifted towards this to buy everything else we still needed. They then individually wrapped every single gift so that it would be wrapped uh, for the children. And then in the little bags here, um, we've got a, a grocery voucher for, for the family along with a list of what gifts are in their tub, individually numbered with stickers, and given them those little Christmas labels so that mum and dad on Christmas Eve can actually write little labels for their kids and put them onto these presents under whatever tree they've got. So seven families in South Auckland this year are going to enjoy Christmas because of your generosity. So thank you very much. I think it's one of the most awesome things we get to do as a church. So thanks for being part of And uh, next year we'll see if we can bless even more families. All righty. 
We are in this Christmas season, and so I want to jump in because this is kind of a one-off. We finished our Reformation series last week. Next week is Emoji Christmas, and you just have to be here for Emoji Christmas family service with all of the kids and with us as well. Um, But today's is kind of a one-off. It was just sitting here, and I was thinking, what do I want to do to talk about Christmas and kind of get us into this Christmas season? And decided that I want to speak about one particular character in the Christmas story. Um, We've talked about Mary in the last few weeks in in the Reformation series, because part of talking about the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation has been talking about the difference between the way that the Roman Catholic Church views Mary and the way that Protestant churches view Mary. And um, in the Roman Catholic Church, I pushed up quite hard against the notion that Mary is worshipped or venerated, that she should be prayed to, because none of that is biblical. We Uh, go through Jesus Christ alone is one of the key ideas of the Reformation, that he alone is the sole mediator between a holy God and and sinful human beings. So we don't pray to Mary, we don't go through Mary, we don't look to Mary for salvation. And um, as a Protestant, I think the Roman Catholic Church has it wrong on Mary. But I think most of us as Protestants have got it wrong too, because we swing the pendulum the other way. And so because we don't want to be like that and we don't want to venerate Mary and hold Mary up as some icon of whatever, we swing the other way and if anything, we just ignore Mary. But I want to suggest today that I actually think out of all the characters in the Bible story, uh, in the story of Christmas, she is amazing. I think she is an incredible model of faith. If you're a young woman, I can't think of a better character in the Bible as a model of what courageous faith looks like. But I don't think that's only true for young women. I think that's true for all of us, old and young men and women. Out of all of the characters of the Bible, I increasingly feel like Mary is one of the top draw examples of what faith in Jesus looks like. So I don't want to get into the veneration of Mary as the Catholic Church does, but neither do I want to get into the Protestant, let's ignore her as we focus on Jesus, because I think she's a tremendous model of faith. And so today, I want to focus in on her. What I'm suggesting is that she is not a saint to worship, she is not an advocate to pray to, but she is an amazing example to follow. And so I want to look at her as a model of faith today as we enter this Christmas season. So if you've got a Bible, I want to look at one particular part of the Christmas story that I think shows her faith in an amazing way. And so I want to look at part of the story of Luke chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you've got a phone with the Bible app on it, uh, whatever works for you, I'd love you to come with me to to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at the announcement uh, of Gabriel the angel to Mary, telling Mary what was going to happen in her part in the Christmas story. So it's Luke 1, 26. Uh, through to 38. As you're finding that on your app or or turning the pages on your Bible, um, I do have to just quote Martin Luther one more Sunday, just because I'm still in the Luther kind of mindset at the moment. But I found this lovely quote from uh, from Luther. God could have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas' daughter. He was the high priest, probably the most important official at that who, according to Luther, and I don't know if this is true, but Luther says she was fair and rich, in gold-embroidered raiment and attended by a retinue of maids in waiting, but God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. 
And if mean means like mean, scary, I think it means mean as in pretty ordinary. And, and that's very true. I think, you know, one of the great um, keys of the, the Christmas story is the idea of Philippians 2, where the one who was in very nature God um, emptied himself and became a human being. There's a real a humbling in the whole Christmas story. And this is part of it, um, who Jesus chose to be the mother of the Son of God. Um, was a very humble peasant girl, and that's who we meet in this story in Luke chapter 1. What I want to do is I want to walk through this passage, but I just want you to see how beautifully this part of God's story is woven together. We believe that the Bible is God's word and that the Holy Spirit inspired it as the Bible, but it was also written by human authors who have different styles. And some of the human authors in particular, all of them inspired by God, but some of them in particular are outstanding writers, um, amazing poets, wonderful storytellers. And I think Luke crafts his gospel, his story of Jesus, really, really well. And this, this little paragraph or this little section, I think, shows that quite nicely. Luke tells the story of Gabriel appearing to Mary in a way that highlights Mary's response. So he turns up, uh, he appears before her, and there's the first response, and he makes the announcement that she is going to uh, give birth to the Messiah, and she responds, and then he answers her question, and she responds one more time. And so the entire story is woven um, around Gabriel's appearance and his words. Most of the words in the story are Gabriel's coming out from his mouth, and yet through just these three simple little verses, what gets highlighted is Mary's response to those. And what I'm going to concentrate on this morning is those three little verses. We're going to read the other verses and look at what Gabriel says, but I want to zero in on Mary because I think in three tiny verses, Luke paints a picture of this young teenage girl that I think is quite exquisite. So let's jump into the story and let's begin with the appearance, uh, first of all, of Gabriel. So Luke 1, 26 to 28. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which is her elderly cousin who hasn't been able to have kids, but Gabriel turned up to her, uh, her husband, Zechariah, and said, you're going to have a son who will be John the Baptist. And so in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, what Luther called a mean town, um, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So we're introduced to Mary uh, in these few verses, and there's a few things we're told. Number one, she's from Nazareth, which is what you know Luther said is this mean town. Nazareth was a very ordinary, poor village in the northern part of Israel. There was nothing special about it. Um, in fact, if anything, it, it had a pretty sad reputation. Um, in John's Gospel, when Jesus meets one of his future disciples, a man named Nathaniel, and Nathaniel hears that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, he's kind of like, Nazareth? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Makes me think of um, one of my boys has just learned that some comedian once visited New Zealand and visited Invercargill and called it the butthole of the world. Uh, all apologies to those of you from Invercargill. But that's kind of the, the, the idea of what Nazareth was like um, in, in, in the land of Israel. That's essentially what Nathaniel was saying. Nazareth? 
How can a Messiah come from the butthole of Israel is basically the idea. Excuse me if that's offensive to you. I'm sorry, but it kind of pretty much sums up what Nazareth was like. So we're told she's from Nazareth. Poor means she's probably of peasant stock, a poor family. We know that Joseph, her betrothed future husband, is a carpenter. He's a blue-collar worker. So it's a pretty basic background that Jesus is going to be born into. Secondly, we're told that she is a virgin. So she is not yet married. She has no sexual experience. So, uh, but she is betrothed. That's the third thing we're told. So betrothed is like an engagement that we would have today, except it's more binding. So they're not yet husband and wife if they're betrothed, but they'll often call, be called husband and wife. And if you're going to break a betrothal, it's not just simply a matter of sending a text, although you should never break an engagement off that way, those of you who are engaged. Um, but it's not just simply a matter of breaking the relationship off over a mutual conversation. You actually had to do, go through the divorce process if you were going to break off a betrothal. So she's betrothed to this guy named Joseph, who is the focus of Matthew's gospel account of the Christmas story. So those are the three things we hear. And then the angel speaks to her in verse 28. Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Now, it's this verse that's actually uh, the basis of the Hail Mary prayer that we talked about a few weeks ago. That opening line that, um, that Catholic people pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, is taken from Luke 1.28. That's what Gabriel said to her. Greetings, hail, you who are highly favoured, full of grace, the Lord is with you. This is the verse that the Catholic Church bases the first part of this prayer from. The problem is that they've based it on the Latin translation of the New Testament that the Catholic Church had used for a thousand years, but the Latin translation is wrong. Um, the people who translated that, I think it was a guy called Jerome, actually got this wrong because what they do in the Latin version and what the Catholics now pray is Hail Mary full of grace, which makes it sound as though Mary is a repository of grace, that she is full of God's grace, so she is now a source of grace to those who come to her. That's the way it reads, and that's the way the translation in the Latin Vulgate Bible that they used for centuries makes it sound like. Our English translations now are based on the original Greek text, and the Greek text is not saying Mary is the source of grace. She's the object of grace. In other words, she is highly graced by God. So the idea is not that Mary is full of grace and she can share some of that with you if you pray to her. The idea is Gabriel turns up and says, Hail, Mary, greetings. You are highly graced of God. In fact, final Martin Luther quote for 2017. <laughs> Luther paraphrases the angel's words this way. Oh, Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. I think that's exactly right. It's not that Mary is the origin of grace. She is the recipient of an incredible grace from God because God has chosen this peasant teenage girl. They were betrothed at around 13 years old. So we're talking about a 13-year-old teenage girl that God sends his angel to to say, you are graced in a way no other human being has been graced. You've been chosen by God to carry his son, the Messiah of the world. It's an amazing 
uh, statement really. And then she responds to that in verse 29. This is the first of these three responses that I want to zero in on. Verse 29 reads, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I've noticed something about Mary's response this week that I've never actually seen before. I've read this story, I don't know how many times, and I've assumed something that I have realized this week the text does not say. I have assumed that Mary, when she was confronted with this angelic visitor, was scared. In fact, as I've read commentaries and sermons and and stuff this week, that's what almost everyone assumes. But it doesn't say that. And what's happened is we've confused this story with the earlier account of Gabriel, the same angel, talking to Zechariah, who's the priest and the future father of John the Baptist. Luke puts these two stories side by side as a way of comparing John the Baptist and Jesus and showing that Jesus is going to be the greater of the two. But we've mixed up the two stories in some ways. If you go back to verses 11 and 12 in Luke 1, to that account, what you find is the angel of the Lord appears uh, to Zechariah in the temple, and when Zechariah saw him, Luke says, he was startled and gripped with fear. And I think what I've always done, and I think what many have done, is we read that into this story. Because the same word is used. It's translated startled in the NIV in this verse. And you get further over to verse 29, and the NIV translates the same word troubled. But it's the same word. I actually like startled. So I'd like to bring startled in here. Whereas Zechariah was startled, Mary, if you look at verse 29, was greatly startled. And Zechariah was gripped with fear, and Mary doesn't say anything about fear at all. And we assume, as we read the story, that this angel appears, and I don't think angels look like those lovely calendars, baby thingy cherubs with wings. I think angels in the Bible look like massive warriors with huge biceps and serious weaponry. That's what angels look like. So Zechariah is scared. doesn't say Mary's scared. She's greatly startled. But what I noticed this week for the very first time, and I don't know how I missed it, she's not greatly startled at his appearance. It's not that she's, and she's not freaked out by how he looks. What does it say? If you've got it open in front of you, what does it say? She was greatly startled at his words. What surprises Mary is not that an angel shows up. It would surprise me, but that's not what she's surprised by. She is not startled by the way he looks or how fearsome he is. She's startled by his words. He has just rocked up to this teenage peasant girl and said, Greetings, Mary. You are incredibly graced. You are a recipient of God's grace the way that no one has ever been before. And she is startled at his words. See, I think the first thing we meant to see in the character of this young woman is a deep humility. God rocks up to her by sending this angel. 
and says, you are the recipient of incredible grace. And I think what we meant to see in her first response is, uh, who? Me? No. I think you've come to the wrong address. The palace is south, a few hundred miles. She's startled, surprised at his words of greeting to her because I think in this young woman we're meant to see a wonderful humility. In fact, you see that later on in this chapter she sings this amazing song that is deeply rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. She was an incredibly biblical young woman. But she sings these words later on in Luke 1. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She's not using humble there to describe her own character. You know, aren't I humble? That whole, you know, oxymoron. She's using it to describe her poor standing in, in society. And says, God has been mindful of me. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. And in the original uh, Greek text of this, what they'll do is they'll rearrange, they, they shift the word order of a sentence to put emphasis. And what that last long line actually says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for to me... He has done great things. And the emphasis is on these little words at the end. It's as though she's going, I cannot believe generations are going to call me blessed because to me, he's showing great things. He, to me, he's going to do amazing things. He wants to use me. And I think this young woman is handpicked by God partly because of the incredible humility that she has. It's almost as though she never gets, gets over the fact that God would handpick her to be the one who would raise the Messiah and the King. So the angel Gabriel then makes his announcement to her. So again, if you've got it in front of you here, look at verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor or grace with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The nation of Israel had been hanging out for centuries for the promised Messiah and fulfillment of the amazing covenant that God had made with King David that one of his descendants would reign on the throne of Israel forever and ever and ever. And this peasant girl in this hick town has just seen an angel who said, you're it. You're going to be his mum. You're going to change the nappies of the Most High God. You are going to feed the future king 
who will reign forever. Blessed be his name. It's incredible. And she responds in verse 34 this way. How will this be since I am a virgin? It's a really good question, isn't it? I enjoy sometimes reading skeptics of Christianity. One of my favorites is a guy, an Anglican Episcopal bishop in America called John Shelby Spong. He has written copious numbers of books, just absolutely nailing the, a biblical faith and belief in Jesus. And one of the things he loves going after is the virgin birth. And basically the essence of what he says is, okay, come on, let's just understand the mechanics of how this works. If a woman's going to have a baby, she has to have sex. That's how it works. So a virgin birth is impossible. And there's a certain arrogance to the way he does his argument. As though people in this time, 2,000 years ago, hadn't worked that out yet. You know? They, they didn't realize that. And so a virgin birth story was easy to, easy to sell. If you, ask, if you tell anyone that, that you know, this is actually what Christmas is about and explain the virgin birth, most thinking adults are going to go, really? You believe in a virgin birth, like she was still a virgin and she gave birth. It's medically impossible. That's what Mary's asking in verse 34, isn't it? She's raising that exact question. See, she... She's not thick. But neither is she just going to sit there and listen to this angel explain something to her without probing that a little bit. There's almost, almost just a little bit of a healthy skepticism to her. She's not doubting that God can do amazing things. But she does want to know, wait a minute, how is this going to work? There's a healthy honesty. There's, a, there's an intellectual side to this young woman. And she's going, um, sorry, that all sounds wonderful, but I've only got an engagement ring on at this point, and we haven't done anything like that. You know, we've behaved. What's the story here? And this is where the, the way that Luke lays out this whole chapter and the contrast between Mary and Zechariah comes through strongly. So you jump back further in this chapter. Uh, the same angel Gabriel has appeared to Zechariah, startled him out of his wits, and made an announcement to him. You and your wife, even though you've been no kids, you're going to have a son, call him John, he's going to be the forerunner of Messiah. And Zechariah says to the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. And my wife is well on in years. I think that's a lovely way of describing his wife, by the way. <laughs> Both Zechariah and Mary ask a how question of Gabriel. Gabriel makes an announcement to both of them, and both of them ask, wait a minute, how's this going to work? But their questions are very different from each other, even though they're both how questions. Zechariah is saying, 
How can I be sure of this? That's a disbelieving question. He's going, nah. Seriously? You need, to, you need to give me some serious miraculous sign to convince me that this is really going to happen. As though an angel in full armor is not enough of a sign. Mary asks a how question as well. But she simply says, how will this be since I am a virgin? In other words, she's assuming what God has said will happen and wants to know how. He's assuming what God has said will not happen unless his skepticism can be overcome. And there's a diametrical difference between the two. One of my uh, favorite authors is a guy called Tim Keller who's just stepped down as a pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. And I love his books, and he's just released uh, last year a new book called Hidden Christmas. And in the chapter about Mary, he highlights this idea and makes this comment. There's a kind of doubt that is the sign of a closed mind, and there is a kind of doubt that is the sign of an open mind. Some doubt seeks answers, and some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. There are people like Mary who are open to the truth, once you explain how this works. And there are people like Zachariah who use doubt as a way of staying in control of their lives and keeping their minds closed. And then Keller just asks, which kind of doubt do you have? See, Mary does not have a closed mind doubt in God. She's not going, oh, come on. You know, is this an April Fool's joke? Is, you know, what's going on? Is there a hidden camera behind that tree? What's going on? She, no, she, she does not write off the possibility of this. She's not skeptical in a, in, a, in a disbelieving way. But she has some questions. And so she comes back to the angel with those questions and is quite prepared to ask them in a way that is very different to Zechariah. She's a, a bright young woman. She thinks it through and she, she's willing to go with God and willing to believe that God is going to do what God has said. She just has a couple of questions that she needs some answers to. So she's a woman both of deep humility, but also a woman of, of healthy uh, and intellectual honesty. And so then the third part of the story is Gabriel's answer to her question. You're still in the passage. Look at verses 35 to 37. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. Gabriel says, I understand you're a virgin. You're not going to have sex with Joseph or anyone else the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you, which is the same word that is used of the Spirit hovering over creation in Genesis 1. And through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, a fertilized embryo is going to be placed in your womb, and that is going to be the Son of God. The question's answered. So Mary responds in the final verse of this beautiful section, verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. 
can sum up Mary's response in one word. Yes. Yes. She says yes to God. God turns up, rocks her world, changes her entire life, says, here's what I want to do. I'm going to fulfill all of these promises that have been centuries in the making, generation after generation have been longing to see the day when these things will come about, and I'm now going to do it, and I'm going to do it through you. Poor, peasant, 13 years old, you're it, Mary. And Mary says, yes. She is an incredible young woman. You are hard-pressed to find a better example of trusting, courageous faith in the entire narrative of the Bible compared to this 13-year-old young woman. I just think she's outstanding. It's an incredibly courageous thing to do because she, at this moment, knows what Gabriel has said and nothing more. She has no idea what will happen in the aftermath of this yes. And there are huge potential costs for her. Let me run through four of them. Number one, relationally, this could cost her marriage to Joseph. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? And if you know the story, which you probably do, in Matthew's gospel, which focuses on and follows Joseph's side of the story instead of Mary's, you read in Matthew 1 that Joseph, when he heard that Mary was pregnant, made up his mind to quietly divorce her. Why? Well, what would you do if your fiancé showed up and said, I'm pregnant? And when you got mad about it, said, but I haven't been with anyone. An angel showed up and told me that the Holy Spirit would hover over me and I'd give birth miraculously to the Messiah even though I'm still a virgin. Put your hand up if you would not reach for the divorce papers. And I'll get the men with white coats to come in and get you. It's inevitable, isn't it? And that's exactly what Joseph plans to do in Matthew chapter 1 until Gabriel shows up and talks to him. But here's the deal. Mary isn't told that Gabriel's now going to go talk to Joseph. Mary has no clue that's going to happen until the day Joseph pounds on her door and says, good night, you were telling me the truth. What Mary is facing is the potential that her marriage that she has been looking forward to is not going to happen. Now, even if you're not married, I think you can understand the excitement that builds in a home leading up to a marriage day. The wedding dress is hanging in the closet, the bridesmaids are all lined up ready for the big day. The venue's been booked. The rabbi's ready to go. The cake's been baked by Great Aunt Sue. The flowers are on order. Everything's ready. And the excitement leading up to your wedding day is one of those special moments in every person's life who gets married. Mary was kissing goodbye to all of that. This was going to cost her her marriage without the intervention of God. 
And when she said yes to God, she said no, not only to Joseph, but to probably any hope of ever marrying. Secondarily then, this was going to cost her financially. In a world where women married, she was going to probably be left single and therefore destitute. Not only would she struggle as a solo mum, and the longer I've been a parent, the more on awe I am of those of you who are solo parents. Not only would she be a solo mum for her life, but she would do it in a society where she would have to survive on the very fringes, eking out a financial existence for the rest of her life. This would not only cost her relationally, this would cost her financially. Thirdly, it would cost her socially. I mean, how many people would believe her story? This was going to ruin her reputation. And you know what? Our reputations are important to us, aren't they? What people think of us. She was going to go through life knowing that people were probably snickering at her behind her back. In fact, you even see hints of this in the Gospels. There are a couple of times where Jesus' enemies make a line at him. One of the times the Pharisees will look at Jesus in John's Gospel and say, we know who our father is, meaning we've all heard the story about your mum, and that's what Mary had to live with by saying yes to God. And then finally, of course, under the Old Testament law, this could have cost her her very life. They needed permission to do that from the Romans, but it was a possibility that she could have been stoned for saying yes to God. This incredible young teenage woman is one of the most amazing examples of faith in our whole Bible. Because when she said yes to God, she said yes at great personal cost to her. In many ways, I see Mary's faith and trust and commitment to God in the same light that I see Abraham's in the Old Testament. When the writer to the Hebrews is talking about the people of old who have lived by faith, he would say, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. And even though Mary didn't go on a physical journey, there's ascension which Mary went on that same kind of journey as Abraham. Mary set out in faith, and she didn't know where this was going either. She had no idea how this would turn out. She had no idea how she would get by. She had no idea how all of this would settle. She had no idea about the ramifications of her decision to say yes to God, but by faith, just like Abraham, Mary said yes. Which means she's not only a woman of deep humility and a healthy honesty, she is a woman of incredible, courageous faith. Does that mean she should be venerated and worshipped? No. Does that mean she's our advocate to pray to? No. We pray to Jesus alone. 
Does that mean, though, if we're searching for examples in Scripture of wonderful, courageous faith, does that mean she's a model? Absolutely. She is near the top, if not at the top, of the list. And it's no surprise that this young peasant girl is the one that God picked out of all Israel to be the mother of his son. These four just sung, Mary, did you know? I I don't think she did. I don't think when she said yes to God, I don't think she knew the answers to virtually any of those questions. But she said yes anyway. In his book, Hidden Christmas, Tim Keller talks about going to a conference a number of years ago where the conference speaker was talking about a life of faith. The conference speaker just asked everyone there two questions. So profound that Keller wrote them down, and he includes them in this chapter on Mary in Hidden Christmas. First question is this. Are you willing to obey anything the Bible clearly says to do, whether you like it or not? It's a slightly unnerving question, isn't it? Are you prepared to obey what the Bible says about sexual ethics, whether you like it or not? Are you prepared to obey what the Bible says about a life of integrity, whether that's convenient or not? Are you willing to obey what the Bible says about sharing your faith with your work colleagues, whether that's scary or not? Are you willing to obey what the Bible calls you to be like in your home, whether you feel like it or not? The second question is even harder, just to warn you. Are you willing to trust God in anything he sends into your life, whether you understand it or not? Are you willing to trust God with whatever he allows to happen, whatever he sends into your life, whether you understand it? And what this conference speaker suggested and what Keller reiterates is that's courageous faith. That's the faith of Mary. The challenge is whether you and I are willing to follow her example and be men and women who walk in her footsteps. Beginning of this year, as we kicked off our prayer series, we taught through the Lord's Prayer. And when I taught through that phrase in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done, I ended the sermon with a prayer from John Wesley. And I want to circle back because I think John Wesley's prayer is a prayer that Mary would have prayed wholeheartedly. John Wesley prayed this, O Lord God, Holy Father, who has called us through Christ to be partakers of this gracious covenant, this amazing relationship with you, we take on ourselves the joy, with joy the yoke of obedience. And we engage ourselves out of love for you to see and to do your perfect will. 
Wesley continued, I'm no longer my own, I'm yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing or put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. The courageous man or woman who will pray John Wesley's prayer. But one person who would off was Mary. Because that's exactly what she did. And we celebrate Christmas because a 13-year-old teenage girl was that kind of woman. Tremendous example to follow. I want to end this morning by giving you a moment with God. I want to come back to these two questions. And I simply want to invite you to sit in a moment of quiet and contemplate those questions. And then talk to God. I don't know what your response would be. I don't know what the Holy Spirit may want to lay on your heart. I don't know which of those two questions is more scary. I simply want to leave you to reflect and to pray. And then in a minute, I'll just close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, these two questions are really hard questions to answer with a resounding yes. Because what echoes in our minds right now are the implications of a yes. For some of us sitting here, Lord, the implication of saying I'm willing to obey what the Bible clearly says means we have to change some things in our lives. We have to repent of some sins. We have to change some practices, and that's scary. For others of us sitting here, it's that second question. The willingness to 
throw ourselves wholeheartedly and trustingly into your hands and say, I'll trust you in anything, even if I don't understand it. We're really scared to say that too. And yet, we've just read the story of a 13-year-old teenage girl say exactly that to you. And it's because she said yes that Jesus was born and we've been given life and all that is Christmas and Easter and the whole message of good news has come about. Compared to Mary, Lord, we really do struggle to submit ourselves to you, to walk by faith but we long to. Would you help us trust you like Mary did? Would you help us to say, whatever, God, I'm in. No matter what you call me to, no matter what you ask me to do, the answer is a resounding yes. We bring you our lives again this morning. Break them apart like an alabaster jar lay them out of worship to you. For your glory. Amen.